can be seated. Well, good morning. Just get set up here quickly with my pseudo teleprompter. If somebody wants to tell a joke during this time, that'd be. There we go. Can't forget these. Um, these are not actually reading glasses um, yet at this age, fortunately. These are just blue blockers. Um, they help me not get headaches. I'm also told that they make me look smarter. Um, and I'll take every advantage I can get. So um, as you may have seen in the bulletin this week, our subject for this morning and next week is death. And this is something I've been thinking about a fair amount over the last several years. Um, before anybody calls the people with the straitjackets to take me away and lock me in a padded room, um, I just want to clarify that I'm not mentally or emotionally unstable, and the only potential harm I pose to myself is that brought on by a tendency to eat too many chocolate chip cookies. I haven't been thinking about death in an alarming way. In fact, I haven't really even been thinking about my own death. Rather, I've been thinking about death in the abstract, death as a concept. Also, as my wife or any of my family members could tell you, I think about a lot of things a lot. It's one of my more annoying features. Uh, Dr. Michael Lacona, who many of you know from our Reason for Hope conference a number of years ago, defines a philosopher as a person who spends all day thinking about the number four, and he's not entirely wrong. That's largely why I studied philosophy. I figured if I was just going to think about ideas and concepts all day anyway, I may as well try to learn to do it well. But back to death. So this is a topic I've wanted to talk about for a couple years. Brianna's death in 2019 prompted me to think about death both more and in a more rigorous fashion than I'd done previously. And I found what I learned to be beneficial. So much so that I actually planned to use my sermon in April 2020 to talk about death. However, we all remember what happened in March of 2020. COVID-19 upended things. At that point, it was still very early, and we didn't know what things were going to look like or how many people might be getting very sick or even dying from COVID. And so I decided to wait for another time. In the interim, many of us have lost close friends and family members, some to COVID, some to other causes. The death of Sophia last year again brought home to me the importance of having a solid understanding of death. So while I realize that this topic will hit close to home for a number of us who have lost loved ones recently. I also realize that there will never be an ideal time to talk about death, and this seems like as good a time as any. Before we really jump in, though, I want to clarify that when I say death, I'm referring to physical death as opposed to spiritual death. Spiritual death, while also an important topic, is a subject for another time and maybe for another person. I also want to spend a bit of time explaining why I think death is an important topic for us to cover, important enough to spend two sermons on. First, death is a universal human experience. Barring the imminent return of Christ, not only will each of us die, but everyone we know or ever have known either has died or will die as well. We all know that, but I wonder how often we actually stop and reflect on it. It's a sobering thought. There have been all sorts of discoveries and advances in science and technology and medicine, 
And these have allowed us to forestall death, but they cannot eliminate it. At some point, each of us will die. Given that death is something we all experience, you would think then that it would probably be considered a very important topic, something we would think about and prepare for and discuss with others. And to a certain extent, I think that is the case. We do prepare for death, at least in some ways. We do things like purchase life insurance, and we establish beneficiaries on our bank accounts and our IRAs. We prepare wills and we choose executors. We argue with our siblings over which of us really deserve the most important family heirlooms. We pre-purchase cemetery plots, and some people, like Wendell, even pre-build their caskets and store them in their garages. Uh, some of you who are newer may think I'm kidding. I'm not. Uh, ask Wendell about it afterward. Generally speaking, we do a pretty good job of preparing for death on a practical level. However, most of us have probably had limited engagement with death on a theoretical or ideal level. Many of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, have never thought about death in a rigorous, systematic fashion. Once we leave the practical level, most people get pretty uncomfortable. Updating the beneficiaries on our life insurance, well, that we can deal with because at least it feels like we're doing something. But to just sit down and think about death, really think about why it is and what it means, well, that feels kind of yucky and uncomfortable, so we largely avoid it. And it does show. It shows in multiple areas, but I submit that one of the most obvious indicators of the dearth of serious thought about death on the part of the average Christian is the inane, trite platitudes that are spouted off to people who have experienced the death of a loved one. Things like, she's in a better place now, or it was just his time, or God must have needed another angel in heaven, or just think about how happy he is right now, and we could give many others. As a result of our general reluctance to think and talk about death, I think that many of us have uncritically absorbed sloppy or even mistaken ideas about death, if not on a conscious level, at least on a subconscious one. Let me give one example. There's a fairly popular contemporary worship song called Christ Be Magnified. The song contains the curious line, death is just a doorway into resurrection life. Just in case you're wondering, the context of the line suggests that it means exactly what it appears to mean that death is nothing more than a door through which we pass that leads to resurrection life. Now, I recognize the importance of poetic license in songwriting, but this just seems silly. The Bible does not teach that we are immediately resurrected upon dying. And if this line is not attempting to communicate that we are immediately resurrected upon death, but rather that death is a necessary prerequisite to receiving our resurrected bodies, then woe to any still living when Christ returns, as they will have missed the doorway to the resurrection. So how is it that a line like this ends up in a popular worship song, and as far as I can tell, very few people seem to care or even notice? Does this not suggest that many of us are not thinking critically about death, about what it is and is not? I think so. And if I am correct, this is a problem. After all, our God is the God of truth, and one of the ways we honor him is by thinking correctly about things. When we think incorrectly about things, we do not honor him. But also, as we all know, incorrect ideas often have real-world practical consequences, and when it comes to such important topics as death, the stakes are high. 
I would venture a guess that most of us can think of at least one person who has experienced serious doubts or perhaps even left the faith over a traumatic experience such as the death of a loved one. To be clear, I'm not saying that developing a correct understanding of death will absolutely prevent one from doubting one's faith in the wake of a tragedy, but it ought at least to help. It certainly has helped me. As Tom Detmer has talked about before here at Tech, despite how it seems, our feelings are not automatic responses to situations. Our feelings are actually determined by our thinking. So if we are thinking things about death that are incorrect, in the wake of the death of a loved one, we may end up feeling things that are unwarranted, and this has consequences because our feelings are powerful. Another reason I think it's important for us to talk about death is so that we can be prepared to help others who have experienced the death of a loved one. Again, having a good understanding of death is not going to turn us into skilled therapists, and there's far more to helping someone who is grieving than knowing facts about the situation at hand. Sometimes when a person is grieving, what he or she needs is just for us to be there, to show up and shut up, if you will. However, sometimes a person who is greeting, grieving excuse me, needs or wants to be reminded of the truth, and a prerequisite for reminding others of the truth is that we must know it ourselves. Finally, I think how we comport ourselves around the subject of death presents an opportunity to differentiate ourselves from the world and reach others with the gospel. As Christians, the way we think about death will, or at least should, be different from the rest of the world, and this should inform the way we act. And if we're acting differently from the rest of the world, at least some people will want to know why, which provides a great opportunity to share the truth. So hopefully you're convinced at this point that talking about death is a worthwhile endeavor because we're gonna do it either way. So this week, we're going to start by defining death, and then we're going to look at four basic facts about death that we derive from Scripture. Next week, we will talk about the implications that these facts have for the way we respond to death, and then we'll finish up by looking at a couple of anticipated questions. The material, both this week and next, will be fairly basic and not very complicated, and I don't expect there will be much, if anything, that you've never heard before. However, what may be new, at least for some of us, is considering the material in a systematic, organized fashion. So let's jump in. In order to have a productive conversation about death, we first need to define what it is we're talking about. That is, we need to answer the question, what is death? Now, at first glance, this might seem overly simplistic, too basic, not worth our time, but I don't think that's the case. As those of you who have taken any philosophy know, much of philosophy is nothing more than haggling over definitions, and many ideas and concepts that we all use regularly and think we understand well are actually surprisingly difficult to define in a satisfactory manner. For examples, see time, space, or matter. When it comes to death, I would venture to guess that most people, if asked to define death, would offer something like the opposite of life or perhaps the cessation of life. Of course, this then begs the question, what is life? But if pressed, I think most people would fall back on a description of death as something like the end of existence. Perhaps we are even used to thinking of death in this way. However, that is not really correct. Death is not the end or cessation of existence per se. While our bodies are perishable and at some point will cease to function, we are not just physical bodies, and our souls do not cease to exist when our physical bodies cease to function. 
in introducing Christian doctrine, which we've been reading for the past year as part of our Life and Doctrine study, Millard Erickson notes that there are numerous biblical passages that speak of death as the cessation of life in our physical bodies and the separation of the body from the soul. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells his disciples, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In referring to death, Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. James 2.26 notes, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Erickson concludes, What we are dealing with in these passages is cessation of life in its familiar bodily state. This is not the end of existence, however. Life and death, according to scripture, are not to be thought of as existence and non-existence, but as two different states of existence. Death is simply a transition to a different mode of existence. It is not, as some tend to think, extinction. Now, at first glance, Erickson's description of death, not as non-existence, but as a different mode of existence, might strike us as strange or even hokey. But as we have noted, we are not purely physical beings. We are made up of bodies, which are perishable, and of souls, which are immortal. As such, we will not actually cease to exist at death, although the mode or manner of existence will be different. So, I would suggest the following definition of death. Death is the separation of the body and the soul that takes place when the major systems and organs of the body cease to function in a coordinated fashion. I'll read that one more time. Death is the separation of the body and the soul that takes place when the major systems and organs of the body cease to function in a coordinated fashion. Some of you are thinking this is the problem with philosophy. We can't even define death without um, at least 30 words. But um, I think it is important, though, that we make sure up front we understand what we're talking about. So at this point, we've arrived at what is not necessarily a perfect, but at least, I hope, an adequate definition of death. But in defining death, we have not come close to exhausting the topic. There's plenty more that the Bible tells us about death, and so we're going to look at a few additional things that we can learn about it from Scripture. I mentioned exhausting the topic, so let me clarify that we are not going to be doing that this morning. Um, this is not an exhaustive survey. My goals are much more modest. Rather, I want to look at just four additional things we learn about death from the Bible. First, death is a consequence of sin and was not part of God's original design for humanity. I don't expect any real pushback on this point, but let's briefly look at Genesis anyway. We'll pick up in chapter 2 after the creation of Adam. Starting at chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll skip a bit now and jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So at this point, Adam and Eve are living in the garden with access to the tree of life. 
It's worth noting that I grew up thinking, or perhaps just assuming, that Adam and Eve were created with immortal bodies. However, many, probably even most scholars, think that Adam and Eve were created with mortal bodies like us, and that absent access to the tree of life, they would have experienced death. Otherwise, what would be the point of the tree of life? Erickson terms this position conditional immortality. I do actually find this position persuasive. However, whether created with mortal or immortal bodies, Adam and Eve have access to the tree of life and are allowed to eat of it. So in either case, the result at this point is the same. As on the one position, Adam and Eve have immortal bodies, and on the other position, Adam and Eve have conditionally immortal bodies, and, importantly, the condition for immortality is met. But we all know what happens next. Tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In response, God pronounces judgment on the serpent, on Eve, and on Adam. Let's jump to God's words to Adam. And this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. To Adam, he, that is God, said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And then jumping down to verses 22 and 23. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So we see in these two sets of verses that God told Adam that he will die and has revoked Adam and Eve's access to the tree of life. So again, irrespective of whether we believe that Adam and Eve were initially created with mortal, or excuse me, immortal or conditionally immortal bodies, the result is the same. As a consequence of sin, they and their descendants will experience death. Let's move on now to our second item, which is that death is an enemy. This makes sense. After all, we just said that death is a consequence of sin and was not something God intended for humans to experience. However, we don't have to infer this fact because Paul tells us this directly in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll jump in at verse 20. Paul here is in the process of responding to the false claim that some were making that there is no resurrection from the dead. And he writes, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So death is an enemy, in fact, the last enemy to be destroyed, and an enemy over which we have victory through Christ. Christ's resurrection serves as notice of his victory over death and is the guarantee of our resurrection when Christ returns. And this brings us to our third point, which is that death is temporary. While we will all experience death, we will all also be resurrected and given new bodies when Christ returns. The passages we just read speak to that. To be fair, though, in the passages we just read, Paul is speaking to believers. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Paul says that when Christ comes, those who belong to him will be raised. However, we know from other passages that all will be raised, Christian and non-Christian alike. In John 5, verses 28 through 29, Jesus tells his listeners, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Likewise, in Acts 24, when Paul is on trial before Felix, he says, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they, uh, that is the Jews who were accusing Paul at that time, call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Let's move on now to our fourth point which is that death is unnatural. I need to clarify what I mean by this, because a short while ago I just said that Adam and Eve may have been created with mortal bodies that were dependent on access to the tree of life for immortality. So if access to the tree of life were to be revoked, then naturally, that is, without intervention, they would die, right? I think that's true. Of course, one might argue that even on this understanding of the nature of man, Death is unnatural in the sense that God did not intend it for humans, and that absent sin, it would not be a part of the human experience. That is also true. However, that's still not what I mean when I say that death is unnatural. Rather, what I mean is that death is unnatural because we were created as beings consisting of a body and a soul. For the body and soul to be separated by death is unnatural because that is not how we were intended to exist. This is a point that I think is very much underappreciated today. If you asked the average Christian, I suspect they would say that the hope of the, of the Christian life is something along the lines of dying and going to heaven. But as any of you who have heard Wendell give a funeral message know, this is short-sighted. The hope of the Christian and God's answer to death is not our disembodied state in heaven awaiting the final resurrection. Rather, it is resurrection and life in the new heavens and the new earth. We read a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians 15. Let's return there, and we're going to look this time at a slightly longer passage. We'll begin in verse 50. Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this passage makes it pretty clear that Paul sees the defeat of our enemy death as being accomplished not through temporary disembodied existence in heaven, but through the final resurrection. As Paul says in verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, that is when we have been raised and received our glorious resurrection bodies, that is when the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. That is God's answer to death. We see Paul express something similar in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks of the suffering and affliction he and his companions have experienced and expect to go on experiencing. And he explains that they do not lose heart as they recognize that their light momentary affliction is preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He continues this theme into chapter 5. We'll pick up at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to continue through verse 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Sorry about that, but voice was cracking and sounded like I was going through puberty, so hopefully that will help. <clears throat> so as you probably picked up on there, the earthly tent Paul refers to in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5 is our mortal bodies. Recall that Paul worked as a tent maker while staying in Corinth, and this analogy makes a bit more sense. Likewise, Paul uses building from God and heavenly dwelling to refer to the bodies that we will be given at the final resurrection. Paul appears to be using naked and unclothed to refer to the disembodied state in which we exist between our death and the final resurrection. Note again what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That is, Paul is saying that in the face of the suffering and affliction he and his companions are facing, their hope is not in temporary disembodied existence in heaven, but in the final resurrection. I submit the, the approach that would see the hope of the Christian as disembodied existence in heaven smacks strongly of Platonism. To greatly oversimplify for the sake of brevity, Platonism holds that the physical world is but an imperfect or shadow copy of the non-material, ideal world of the forms. Various forms of Platonic and Neoplatonic thought exist, and generally speaking, they see the goal of existence as es escaping the physical wor world <clears throat> and returning to existence in the immaterial or spiritual world. One of the former philosophy professors at IPFW that Nate and I both had was a Neoplatonist and on occasion would openly proselytize in class. His position was that you didn't need to give up your current beliefs to become a Neoplatonist. 
You just sort of append Neoplatonism to whatever your current worldview happened to be. So he would say, if you're Jewish, you just become a Jewish Neoplatonist. If you're a Christian, you just become a Christian Neoplatonist, and so on. I don't really know how that would work if you were, say, um, uh, a naturalist who didn't believe in any sort of um, existence beyond the material, uh, but we never really got into that. Now, hopefully, we all see and can agree that Christianity and Platonism are not compatible and cannot be syncretized without destroying one or the other. And as such, I trust that we would all oppose any open attempts to harmonize Christianity and Platonism. However, we are probably all more influenced by non-Christian ideas than we realize, and sometimes decidedly non-Christian ideas and concepts, like Platonism, are smuggled into mainstream Christian thought, with many Christians being none the wiser. I suspect that this is what, happened, what has happened here with the idealization of disembodied life in heaven. As an example of this, I present the song Absent from Flesh. It was written by Isaac Watts and more recently has been popularized by Sojourn. And I'm not going to sing it for you because no one deserves to be put through that. But here are the lyrics. If this works. Um, I don't, the back projector. Okay. So, I, oh, there we go. It's on the back now. Perfect. Absent from flesh, O blissful thought, what joy that moment brings. Freed from the blame my sin has brought, from pain and death and its sting. Absent from flesh, O glorious day, in one triumphant stroke, my reckoning paid, my charges dropped, and the bonds round my hands are broke. I go where God and glory shine to one eternal day, and this failing body I now resign, for the angels point my way, for the angels point my way. Absent from flesh, then rise my soul, where feet nor wings could climb, beyond the sky where planets roll, and beyond all keep of time. I go where God and glory shine to one eternal day, and this failing body I now resign, for the angels point my way, for the angels point my way. Absent from flesh, then see thy God with eyes unveiled and free, will face to face his glory laud and radiance ever see. And then we get the chorus one more time. I go where God and glory shine to one eternal day. In this failing body I now resign, for Christ has made a way, for Christ has made a way. A church I attended when I lived in Columbus was very fond of this song. And the first time I heard it there, I was extremely confused and thought I had to be missing something. So I went home and looked up the lyrics. But this just confirmed my initial misgivings. I suppose it could be argued that when the song says absent from flesh, it means our sinful natures, not our physical bodies. However, it seems to me that the song is still glorifying disembodied existence. Otherwise, I don't know why the lines that say, this failing body I now resign, or then rise my soul where feet nor wings could climb, or for the angels point my way. All of these seem quite clearly to point to disembodied existence. Note again the first lines, absent from flesh, O blissful thought, what joy that moment brings. Compare that with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 that we just read. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. The contrast is striking, or at least that's what I thought. So that week after small group, I tried sounding out some of the other group members to get their feelings on the song. 
and no one else seemed bothered. Uh, needless to say, that did not help my reputation as a group curmudgeon. But what really astonished me was when that same church decided to do this song as the conclusion of their Easter service. And I'm not kidding. On Easter, the day that Christians all across the world celebrate the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, that particular church closed its service with a song that, as far as I can tell, celebrates escaping our bodies and existing in heaven as disembodied spirits. The irony of this was too much for me, and so after the service, I tried to point that out to some fellow small group members, and I don't think I convinced anybody, but I definitely cemented my status as a true curmudgeon's curmudgeon. All right, so as we close, let's really quickly review what we covered today. As Christians, death is an important subject for us to think about and talk about in order to prepare for the deaths of ourselves and our loved ones and to be able to support others who have ex <coughs> excuse me, experienced the death of a loved one. Thinking and acting biblically about death should also differentiate us from the culture at large, which may result in opportunities to share the gospel. Next, we looked at what death is, and we defined it as the separation of the body and the soul that takes place when the major systems and organs of the body cease to function in a coordinated fashion. Finally, we looked at four things that I think are key to a correct understanding of death. Death is a consequence of sin. Death is an enemy. Death is temporary. And death is unnatural. We'll pick up here next week and look at the relevance of these items for the way we think about and approach death. Thank you, Josh. Um, appreciate that material being presented in a systematic and organized and logical way and bringing together a lot of the things that we have learned over the years, but bringing it all together um, in a nice package. Really appreciate that. Uh, Josh referred quite a bit to 1 Corinthians 15, and that, of course, is the chapter of the resurrection. And um, the chapter concludes with these words. So I'll have you stand, and this will serve as our benediction. Again, chapter 15, Paul is laying out the case for the resurrection, that this is our great hope and is the defeat of death, the final enemy. And then he says, therefore, you should always pay attention whenever we see the word therefore, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. In light of all of this, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So those are your marching orders, and on those words you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.